You're listening to the expository preaching ministry of Kootenai Community Church, located in Kootenai, Idaho. We pray that Christ is exalted and your spirit is blessed by the teaching of God's Word. For more information about Kootenai Church, please visit us online at kootenaichurch.org. Do we do anything for birthdays? Like in, in, in Sunday with the little kids, we have like a birthday thing where we sing happy birthday and embarrass them and stuff like that. Do we do anything like that in here? Yeah, sure. <laughs> <laughs> DJ says we don't do things like that. Uh, <laughs> it was Deidre's birthday yesterday, right? Yesterday? Yeah. And tomorrow's Canadian Thanksgiving, so it's kind of a double... Double whammy. Okay, let's pray and then we'll get started. Father, we're again thankful for your word. We're thankful for the, uh, the content that it has in it for us today. Lord, pray that uh, as we read it that we'll understand it and you'll also give us the courage to do it. There's some things here that do take some courage. And I pray, Lord, that you would uh, just give us the, the conviction to know that you're perfect and your word is true and that what it says we, we do. I pray this in Jesus' name. Okay, last time we kind of finished up the qualifications with the believing children, uh, not self-willed, self-willed, just made a word up, not self-willed, uh, the word just or upright, uh, the word devout or holy, and talked about clinging to the word for sound doctrine, and thought a little bit about the, a professional model of eldership that isn't a biblical model necessarily, right, where Qualifying and recognizing elders is a little bit different than hiring a an employee. Right? It's not the same thing. So we don't just look for certification. We have to actually do testing. Okay. And then we talk a little bit about applying qualifications. What happens if Jess is driving 105 miles an hour? It was the one that we used. He wasn't here, so it worked out good. And then we talked about the uh, pastor who's put on a few pounds. We talked about those sorts of issues. So we're going to go on today uh, in 1 Timothy chapter 5. There's a lot in 1 Timothy chapter 5 about relating to elders. That's what we'll do. And we're going to read verses 17 through 25. 1 Timothy chapter 5. Verses 17 through 25. The elders who rule well are to be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who work hard at preaching and teaching. For the scripture says, You shall not muzzle the ox while he's threshing, and the laborer is worthy of his wages. Do not receive an accusation against an elder except on the basis of two or three witnesses. Those who continue in sin rebuke in the presence of all, so that the rest also will be fearful of sinning. I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus and of his chosen angels to maintain these principles without bias, doing nothing in a spirit of partiality. Do not lay hands upon anyone too hastily and thereby share responsibility for the sins of others. Keep yourself free from sin. No longer drink water exclusively, but use a little wine for the sake of your stomach and your frequent ailments. The sins of some men are quite evident, going before them to judgment. For others, their sins follow after. Likewise, also, deeds that are good are quite evident, and those which are otherwise cannot be concealed. Right, so you see there's a lot of instruction there about dealing with elders, and it starts with uh, honoring elders who rule well. 
My Bible says elders who rule well. Yours might say the elders who direct the affairs of the church well. Um, neither one of those are really terrific uh, translations. This is the same word that we saw back in First Thessalonians, uh, those who have charge over you. That's the same, same idea. So rule kind of has some connotations that really don't fit with shepherd elders. Right? Directing the affairs of the church is a little bit weak. They don't just direct the affairs of the church. There's some leadership there. It literally means to stand in front of. Right? So it's that sort of idea of leading. Leading might be a good way to, to say that. And the word well is the same word well that we talked about when he manages his own household well. That is, he does it in a good way and achieves an excellent result. Right? So he does it right and also achieves a result that when we look at it from the outside, we can say he's doing that well. So this is, we're talking about elders here who lead in an excellent and exemplary way. Right? They are worthy of double honor. And this goes to Bonnie's question, who's not here, not you, Bonnie, the other Bonnie. Um, so she's never going to know the answer to this. Should we just stop here and then we'll just pick up next week? No. Just call her. Hey, Bonnie. Worthy of double honor, it says. The elders who rule well are be considered worthy of double honor. Her question was, does that mean they should get twice as much? Well, that's a, that's a good question. That's what it sounds like, right? Double means twice as much, and the word actually does mean twice as much. There's no secrets there. Uh, but I'm gonna, I'm gonna contend that it just means more. And, you can double my pay, that'd be fine. I think even the stewards would be okay with that. <laughs> Would that be okay, Marcia? Yeah, okay. Consider it done. Matthew 23:15. Take a look at that. It says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, because you travel around on sea and land to make one proselyte, and when he becomes one, you make him twice as much a son of hell as yourselves. That's the words of the Lord there, just in case, you know, you have ever bought into the idea of, you know, this nice Jesus that never offended anybody. Uh, he was very, the very strong words here. But the point I want to make, you make him twice as much a son of hell as yourselves, the same word. That twice as much, double honor, twice as much honor, twice as much a son of hell. So how do you measure twice as much a son of hell? Yeah, well, you're 1.4 son of hell and you're 2.7 son of hell. So that's almost twice. You can't do that, right? So it just generally means twice as much. Way more. It's like if I were to say, you know, I'm not half the basketball player I used to be. Something like that. It doesn't mean that I'm exactly half the basketball player I used to be. It doesn't make any sense, does it? can't measure that. Yes, Thomas? I'm sorry. Twice as hot, something like that. <laughs> yeah, it, it, it could. I don't. I don't think it does. That's what I'm getting at. And it doesn't really make sense, to, you know, in the in the text here that it literally means twice as much, you know, because that could mean nothing, or that could mean an extravagant amount. Um, so I'm going to take it to mean more. Those who do the job well are worthy of more honor. So the other question is, what is honor? Well, we think of honor as honor. 
regard or esteem. Uh, Paul often uses these sorts of words to mean money. He doesn't come right out and say they're worthy of more money. He'll use words like honor, regard, esteem. I'm going to contend that he's talking about money here. And here, let me show you why. Um, look back to 1 Timothy 5.3. <clears throat> This begins a passage about widows and taking care of the widows. And it says, honor widows who are widows indeed. This is a passage about taking care of widows financially. If you uh, read through that passage, uh, if anyone does not, does not provide for his own, especially for those of his household, he's denied the faith and is worse than unbelievers. It's talking about providing for them. So it's It's money. And if we read further on in 1 Timothy 5, verse 18, this kind of proves it for us. The scripture says, You shall not muzzle the ox while he's threshing, and the laborer is worthy of his wages. So it's talking about compensation. So the man who rules well is worthy of greater compensation. Here are the, these are the original the two original passages that are being quoted here in verse 18. You shall not muzzle the ox while he's threshing. That's from Deuteronomy 25.4. And I wanted to bring the larger context for uh, Luke 10.7, which is the other, the other verse. The labor is worthy of his wages. This is uh, Jesus talking to his disciples. He says, Now after this, the Lord appointed 70 others, and he sent them in pairs ahead of him to every city and place where he himself was going to come. And he was saying to them, The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, beseech the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Go, behold, I send you out as lambs in the midst of wolves. Carry no money belt, no bag, no shoes, and greet no one on the way. Whatever house you enter, first say, Peace be to this house. If a man of peace is there, your peace will rest on him. But if not, it will return to you. Stay in that house, eating and drinking what they give you. For the laborer is worthy of his wages. Do not keep moving from house to house. Okay. So here it's talking about food and drink. Be willing to take what they provide for you. So, talking about churches providing for these elders. For us, it's money. Okay. Does that make sense? Yeah. Give you one more clarification of this. Another long passage, but it's worth looking at. This is from 1 Corinthians 9. Let's read the whole thing. Try to read it fairly clearly. 1 Corinthians 9, this is verses 3 through 14. This is my defense to those who examine me is this. And this is Paul, obviously. Do we not have a right to eat and drink? Do we not have a right to take along a believing wife, even as the rest of the apostles and the brothers of the Lord and Cephas? Or do only Barnabas and I not have a right to refrain from working? Who at any time serves as a soldier at his own expense? Who plants a vineyard and does not eat the fruit of it? Or who tends a flock and does not use the milk of the flock? I'm not speaking these things according to human judgment, am I? Or does not the law also say these things? For it is written in the law of Moses, you shall not muzzle the ox while he is threshing. God is not concerned about oxen, is he? Or is he speaking altogether for our sake? Yes, for our sake it was written, because the plowman ought to plow in hope, and the thresher to thresh in hope of sharing the crops. If we sowed spiritual things in you, is it too much if we reap material things from you? If others share the right over you, do we not more? 
Nevertheless, we did not use this right, but we endure all things so that we will cause no hindrance to the gospel of Christ. Do you not know that those who perform sacred services eat the food of the temple and those who attend regularly to the altar have their share from the altar? So also the Lord directed those who proclaim the gospel to get their living from the gospel. So Paul's talking about money. He's talking about pay, compensation. Nobody's arguing about that or asking questions, so you must all agree with that. Okay. I thought that might be more controversial than it was. So let's get uh, back to the text. First Timothy 5.17 The elders who rule well are to be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who work hard at preaching and teaching. So they're worthy of more pay, especially those who work hard at preaching and teaching. And that might be better translated in King James. King James doesn't say uh, preaching and teaching. I think it says in the Word and Doctrine. It's in Logos, L-O-G-O-S. You guys know where that's... You've heard John 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. That In John 1, that's the word Logos, Word. It's the same word here. Okay? It's almost always translated Word. Here it's translated Preaching which is probably okay, proclamation of the Word. Uh, But it literally means in the Word and in in teaching or and in doctrine. So I think it's it's clear to us what that means. People who are good at preaching and teaching, who labor at it. The Word actually says, mine says those who work hard. Yours might say something a little different. Does yours say something different than work hard? Labor. It actually means who fatigue themselves at it, who wear themselves out, who tire themselves in preaching and teaching. Okay. So these are the men that are worthy of double honor. Those who rule well, so perform the function of oversight of the church. They do it excellently. And they also work to the point of exhaustion in preaching and teaching, in the Word and in teaching. Right. That makes sense, doesn't it? Okay. But didn't we say earlier that an elder can't even be an elder if they don't work hard at it? That's kind of a qualification of eldering. So is Paul saying, well, you know, the, the lazy, all the lazy elders that don't do anything there at your church, you don't have to give them anything. But those that work hard and in labor and, and oversight and labor and teaching and preaching, pay them a lot. Is that what Paul's saying? So a lazy elder is uh, is it a possibility according to the qualifications we've looked at? A man who desires has a passionate desire for the work. Right. Okay, so then what what does he mean here? He's not talking about the lazy guys versus the guys who work hard. What is he talking about? That's pretty good, isn't it? You got a you got a good qualified man here. Take care of him. That's what Paul's saying. At least part of what Paul's saying. Exactly. 
That is really, seriously, the point. Right? They said, that's why I don't get paid. Now, I, I work hard. I, I do. I, I do. I'm not, I won't, I'm not going to be falsely modest. But I do not labor at preaching and teaching, and, and I don't lead as well as some of the other elders of this church. So it's perfectly reasonable that I not be compensated. And in fact, I can reject compensation, as Paul did. I have, an elder may have a right to some compensation. They also have a right to refuse it, as Paul did. We, we had some questions earlier about what about paid elders, non-paid elders. I think this is a good passage here. You can have both. If you have a paid elder, that paid elder has to be somebody who leads well and who works to the point of fatigue at preaching and teaching. And if they do that, we have to take care of them. That's that's what that's what we're being taught here, I think. And do you have something, or you no? Okay. You throw something at me. Or <laughs> the, That's fine. He has a he has a right to refuse payment. He has that right. We don't, as a church, have the right. I don't believe to say, well, you know, you already got quite a bit of money, so we're just gonna, you know, tighten up the purse strings a little bit so we can go on vacation this summer. Oh yeah. An elder's refusal of compensation have nothing to do with your responsibility to give as you've been given. So, before I go on, does that make sense? Does it, where we're going? So now here's a practical matter. How much do you pay your paid elder? (laughs) At least, we'll start there. I'm not looking for a number, but how do you decide that? How about how, how, cost of living? Yeah. But what does 1 Timothy 5.17 say? The elders who rule well are to be considered worthy, considered worthy of double honor, especially those who work hard at preaching and teaching. That's what it says. It doesn't say, and if they have five kids, you pay them a little more than if they have four kids, and all of that stuff that we... You know, and if they have a cell phone, well, they must be doing okay, so we can cut back a little bit. Right? We don't, that's not what we're directed to do. We're directed to compensate them according to how hard are they working at preaching and teaching and do they lead well. And the better they do it, the more they ought to be compensated. Now, I, I know because I've had to do this to different places, where you sit down and you try to determine, well, what kind of raise should we give this year? Well, let's see. What's inflation? <laughs> you know? Well, he's got eight kids. 
Does anybody know Pastor Rollman? Some people, that, you know, Peggy knows him. He was, he was the pastor over at our church we went to in Seattle. And he had eight children, one of whom had Down syndrome. So there was always the, the consideration of medical bills and his expenses because he had eight children. Then they all started going to college. So, you know, there's always those considerations. He was, you know, they did a good job. They were, they were generous with him. I'm not saying that, but in case somebody's listening. But those really aren't the considerations. Those aren't the primary considerations. They are considerations, right? We want a man to be taken care of in that sense, that his costs are covered. But if he does a great job, he ought to be further compensated. Yes, Mr. Leo? Yeah, you would. You'd be able to deflate pretty. Jess is going. No, and that's not. You know, that's not. I. That's not the topic. You know. Yeah. Yeah, I would absolutely refuse anything like that. That's fine, yeah. But yeah, so that's good. Well, it depends on how you count it, I guess. But anyway, verse 19. How about we go on to verse 19? How's that sound? One more thing on that. I just saw my notes. You know, I look down at my notes a lot, but I don't really read them. I don't know if you noticed that or not. That's a way for me to go. What am I going to say next? But I did see something real on my notes right here, which is we love the stewardship committee. The stewards are awesome because we don't have to decide those things. We have oversight over them, but they very reasonably and generously and rightly come to conclusions about what our staff people should be paid. And they come present those to us. And so it's beautiful. You see how difficult it would be for us as elders to sit down and decide how much Jim ought to be paid and Marsha ought to be paid. That's not a place where we should be. It's not. And so the stewardship committee and the deacons having input, all of that is, is the right, right thing. Carol? I think it's wrong for a church not to provide what the elders need to supply their family um, if they have to be concerned about providing for their family. You know, there should be no concern whatsoever, regardless right. And there's real practical reasons for that. There's the moral aspect of it. It's just wrong. It's just unbiblical. But if you are not providing for, especially a paid elder, who's the, this is their full-time work on your behalf, if you're not providing for them sufficiently, they have to. So that's going to cut into the time they have available to be in the Word and to do an excellent job. Okay. So you see that. Um, verse 19. This is... Marilyn. Oh, sorry. I don't know. I don't know. 
I don't think I can answer that biblically. I mean, from a as a practical matter, yeah, I think you would. But if I'm in a church of millionaires, you still can't be extravagant. With, you know, we don't want to be extravagant. We don't want the person's not there for the money. The person's there for the work, and we don't want to do anything that would cause a reproach in that sense. Um, so I guess that'd be the answer. So the implication there is that would be the average salary then of the of the church, the average income of the church, to that to that man. No, it's it's good wisdom though. Okay, I did have uh, one man I knew that he was uh, an elder of a church and he wanted to have a youth man and he didn't have enough. There wasn't enough people to support a youth man, so he was going to pay for that out of his own retirement income that he had. Well, that's pretty beautiful right there, isn't it? He's willing to do that. I thought that was pretty neat. Yeah. That's a that's a great sacrifice. Your excuse. Maybe, yeah, I don't know. How, how would, just as a maybe a side note, um, wow. Um, how would we, I think th- this church is the closest I've seen to a biblical model of church leadership. Not that, you know, what you know what I mean by that. The New Testament churches would raise up men from within the congregation to serve as deacons, elders. And that's what how we view it as well. So in that case, if we said, well, we need, we, we feel like the work is such that we need another paid elder, we would probably look to develop men from within the church to do that. It would probably be our approach to that, rather than going and calling someone necessarily that had to be paid immediately. Okay, verse 19. We're not really getting very far. <laughs> That's good, though. That's good. Slower is always better when you're doing this. The, so that part, that's honoring elders. The second part is kind of protecting elders. Do not receive an accusation against an elder except on the basis of two or three witnesses. And please remember that one. <laughs> Do not receive an accusation against an elder except on the basis of two or three witnesses. Isn't that pretty clear? Right. So if somebody comes to you and says, Hey, I saw Jess driving 105 miles per hour down Blacktail Road. <laughs> the first question is, how did you know it was 105? <laughs> oh, well, I, uh, now if Mitch came and said, hey, Jess was driving 105, well, that's different because he probably got him with the, that sneaky little radar thing. I don't know. 
But you, you got to, uh, an accusation has to be established, right? It can't just be somebody coming and saying, hey, I, I, I mean, I, I heard something this week that was along these lines. And it's, this was a case of someone saying, well, I have this, I have it on the basis of, of uh, two witnesses that this is this. And the person was talking to somebody else about it. If there is a, something that you consider an established accusation, then what do you do? You publish it in the Daily Bee? Do you go and gossip about it with your friends? No, then you bring it to the man with the witnesses. This, this is, then we, we get into the Matthew 18 process. We're very upfront when there's conflict. We don't, we don't go around talking about other people behind their backs. Right? We have to be very upfront, especially with eldership because they're in leadership. We follow the Matthew 18 process. If someone's offended us, we go to them privately. We, we, we have to do that. If someone's offended us, the first thing we do is not go to somebody else and say, you know, they offended me. You think I should go to them privately? <laughs> yeah, probably. You know, that's, that's what the Bible says. Uh, also, if someone comes to you with an accusation and you think it's true, that doesn't make two witnesses. <laughs> All right? Because so that it's not time to put in the editorial at that point. Okay. So why is this in here? We have a Matthew 18 process of covering offense. Elders are especially open to this sort of thing because they get involved in conflict. They teach against things that some people hold dear, and they get involved in conflict. That's that's not necessarily their conflict, but they have to get involved in. Sometimes they have to work with one side or another side of some conflict. And so they're open to these sorts of accusations. So we have to be careful how we consider them. If somebody came to me and said, just, I saw Jess driving at 105 miles an hour down Blacktail Road, I'd say, no, you didn't. See you later. <laughs> I'm not going to hear that accusation. I'm not going to hear it. If you, if, if you bring somebody with you and you were both there and you saw it, then I would say, go talk to Jess about it. Now, if he doesn't hear him, because he really likes driving 105 miles an hour down Blacktail Road, that's different. I drove 40 miles an hour down Blacktail Road and almost wiped out on that. <laughs> um, okay, but I, I don't want to make this out to sound like it's a blanket protection against actual reproach or the sin on the part of an elder. It is not, right? This passage, as we continue on, actually allows for the possibility that an accusation is established. Then what do you do? Look at verse 20. And this is a, an interesting uh, bit of translation here too. Those who continue in sin, rebuke in the presence of all, so that the rest also will be fearful of sinning. Uh, NIV just has those who sin, correct? The New American Standard has those who continue in sin. King James has them that sin. So there's a difference there, isn't there? New American Standard is saying those that continue in sin or, or it's getting the idea of that pattern of sin. Where the others just say those that sin. Exactly. It's really just talking about this. It's not talking about a pattern of sin. This, The New American Standard is, in my view, imputing a little bit of theology here. 
I said, well, everybody sins, so it must mean those who have some pattern, some continual pattern of sin. It doesn't say that. It's those who sin. Now, we've got to remember our context. Don't entertain an accusation against elders except on the basis of two or three witnesses. But if you get an accusation that is sufficiently public that it is, in fact, we have, it's been confirmed on the basis of two or three witnesses, that's got to be dealt with. That's the sin that we're talking about here. All right? it's, a, it's a public sin. It's confirmed by multiple witnesses. That sort of sin needs to be rebuked in the presence of all so that the rest also will be fearful of sinning. We do. But this is a sin of a type that is publicly known. It's established by multiple witnesses. It's not a sin. It, it, it's it's got to be a sin. It's got to be something that's clearly sin. It can't be my own personal conviction about abstaining from alcohol. It has to be, what does the Scripture say here? And you are clearly in violation of what the Scripture says. You are sinning. It's public. It's known. We've got to deal with it. I think the idea is though not not necessarily lesser or greater sin, but is it in fact sin? We, we may have personal convictions about abstinence from alcohol, for instance. And if I see an elder who is drinking a beer, that might set me off, and I might find somebody else that also sets off, and now we got two. But what does the scripture say? Is that sin? Is that clearly a sin? Is he falling below the standard of scripture? Is a, has a reproach been generated? We have to be careful about that. We always assume the best, right? We never assume the worst. But if the worst is proven, we have to deal with it. And look how we have to deal with it. Yeah. Rebuke in the presence of all. This is much more direct than the Matthew 18 process. This isn't going to him. And if he's repentant, then we're dealing with it and we move on. It's not that. This is public rebuke for sin. Right? This is different. An elder has sinned publicly. We have to we have to stand up and say, "There's a sin here. Can't go on. Got to stop." It may, it's at least a temporary disqualification, maybe a permanent disqualification. We have to deal with that. Now, let's. I want to be careful on this. All disqualification is not necessarily sin. I've said that over and over. The dwarf, right? There are things that can happen that are not sin that can cause disqualification. This is talking about sin on the part of the elder. Okay? Sin. So, why do you think... Well, I'll put this. 
we all sin every day, right? I mean, we, that's just the honest truth. I fall short. So if we take this too literally and say, well, so any sin means public rebuke for an elder, there's no elders, right? Again, so that's where I'm saying it has to be sin of such a type that it is public, that it generates reproach, and then that man needs to be rebuked. Now, so if uh, if uh, an elder tells me a lie, my responsibility is to go to that elder and say, "You told me a lie," and get that clarified and worked out. Right? It's not to immediately call for public rebuke of the elder. Right? This is the sin that rises to this level through multiple witnesses. What a brilliant question. Who does the rebuking? Right? Who does the rebuking? In this church, who would do the rebuking if I were caught in a sin of this nature? Publicly. Jim and Jess, right? What if we were a church that didn't follow the biblical pattern of a plurality of elders? Nobody, right? There's nobody to do the rebuking. The man is in charge of what's going on. Right? So it becomes a church split and you get factions within the church that are trying to get this man out and all that that wouldn't be the case here. They would simply come to me and say, Hey, this has risen to this level, you're disqualified, and I would agree with them, and I would be here for my public rebuke. That's the way it would work for this church. And I would continue serving in whatever manner they determined that I was capable of serving. That's that's the biblical pattern. So, great question. Led into this whole idea of plurality. Why plurality is so important. This is one of the reasons for it. Okay. So, why is that public rebuke so important? Why do we have to do it? So, the man will come back to repentance. And what else? What does it say? The rest also will be fearful. We have to fear the consequences of our sin. So much better to have earthly consequences. you got to fear consequences of sin. Right? God killed Ananias and Sapphira because they lied. Sin is... We just can't have it in the church. Right? So a public sin, especially on the part of leadership, has to be removed. It has to be done publicly so we all understand these are the consequences for sin. Same with church discipline. Same idea. So you think that would be difficult to publicly rebuke an elder? Sounds like it might be difficult. Can you imagine that? Uh, For some sin, like, you know, we cut this guy doing this. And I had to tell you guys about it. And hopefully he's standing here taking his Embarrassment and shame. So what does the word say? Those who continue in sin rebuke in the presence of all so that the rest also will be fearful of sinning. Now Paul's saying, now Timothy, that's going to be hard. So, I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus and of His chosen angels to maintain these principles without bias, doing nothing in a spirit of partiality. Oh. <laughs> right? 
if Timothy had a notion of, well, maybe I'll just like go to him privately and ask him to move to Antioch or some other place. <laughs> no, I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus and of his chosen angels to maintain these principles without bias, doing nothing in a spirit of partiality. That's a solemn charge, isn't it? There's no way out. Um, why so serious? What's the big deal about a little bit of sin? That's what you to keep in mind, right? Hmm? Yeah, you can't teach the Word if you're not keeping it and being an example of it. Christ died for sin. Christ died because of sin. Sin is the issue, isn't it? God hates sin. God is perfect. And when we sin, we sin against the one that's perfect. So sin is awful. It's terrible. You know, Jesus, Jesus talked about, you know, gouge out your eye. If your eye offends, you gouge it out. Remember that? Or cut off your arm. Everybody that ever has taught this to me has said, well, he's using hyperbole. I don't think he was using hyperbole. I think if, in fact, I could stop sinning by gouging out my eye, I better do it. Better to go to heaven with one eye than to hell with two. Right? It's real. It's, you know, we, we tend to, not, not here, not in this church, we don't do this, but if, if you do much listening to what's going on in modern evangelicalism, and like the emerging, emerging church, it's not even about sin. Jesus didn't come to, to get forgiveness of sin. He came to teach us how to live, how to take care of the environment, how to take care of one another, all of that. No, he didn't have to die to do that. He died to, to pay the penalty for our sin. So sin is important. Sin is horrible. Sin is big. It's bad. And it's something that we just can't have. So yeah, it, if somebody is caught in sin, an elder or anybody else, we have to get it out. We have to clean it up. Yep, yep. it's work its way through the whole loaf, right? So, let's see, i got five more minutes. Look at the next verse. It goes right along with this. Verse 22, this exact same idea. He tells them, Don't lay hands upon anyone too hastily, thereby share responsibility for the sins of others. Keep yourself free from sin. Do not lay hands upon anyone too hastily. The laying on of hands is just that public proclamation of here, recognition of eldership is what he's talking about. Okay. It's not it's not magical imparting of uh, Holy Spirit or anything like that. This is just public confirmation to the laying on of hands. This man is being set aside set aside for this work. Recognize. So he's saying, don't make him don't don't recognize a man as an elder too hastily. We we've we've heard that verse before. We always think of it as that assessment part where we're looking for a man to see if he's qualified. Don't be hasty. You know, give him some time and some testing. And that's right. It, it works there. But that's, this is the context of it. Timothy has to go to Ephesus and he's got a clean house. He's got to appoint people. There may be some issues that he's got to deal with where he, somebody's disqualified because of something and he, he may be wanting to restore them. He's got to rebuke somebody publicly for some sin and then maybe there's a period of testing and trying and they could be restored. Don't be hasty in that, what, what he's telling you. 
what Paul is telling Timothy. Don't be hasty. Let enough time pass that you, you can establish this. Because if you're hasty and you reappoint a man or you appoint a man who's unqualified, you share some responsibility for what happens. So don't do that. Um, my timing is really not very good this morning. Um, there's some sins that will rise to the level of permanent disqualification and others that don't. And I think that's kind of what we're looking at here. And I'll give you an example of one that, that I think you know, fairly clearly does. That's the sin of adultery. This is from Proverbs 6. Proverbs 6, uh, 30 through 33. It says, men, who, men do not despise a thief if he steals to satisfy himself when he's hungry. But when he's found, he must repay sevenfold. He must give all the substance of his house. Right, so he's got to repent and make it right. But the one who commits adultery with a woman is lacking sense. He, would dest- he who would destroy himself does it. Wounds and disgrace he will find, and his reproach will not be blotted out. There's a sense in which that sin causes a permanent reproach can't be recovered from. It's permanent disqualification. So there are some sins that rise to the level of permanent disqualification. There's others that can be dealt with. It can be repented. I'm talking about sin now. There's others that can be repented of and can be dealt with and can, over the passage of time, lead to restoration. And I think that's what, what Paul is getting at with Timothy here. Just finish up this verse here. It says, Do not lay hands upon anyone too hastily, thereby share responsibility for the sins of others. So be very careful if a man has been caught in sin or you're looking to qualify somebody. Be very careful about laying on of hands. You don't want to participate in, in their sin. If they have sin issues later on, you don't want to have participated in that. And then he says something really amazing to Timothy. Keep yourself free from sin. How do you feel about that? Keep yourself free from sin. It's what we should strive for. Yeah. Okay. Clearly, right? He's saying, don't, don't. It's you're going to share some responsibility for that. Keep yourself free from it. There's also the idea that Diane has of keep. Yeah, your actual life. Keep it free from sin. And it's just we're to be free from sin. You know that we are free from sin. You know, there's no particular sin that you have to commit that you're unable to avoid committing. You're not a slave to sin. Now, you're going to sin. I mean, we live our life in the flesh. But we can, anytime we're faced with something, we can choose not to sin. It's the power of the Holy Spirit. That's what he's telling Timothy. Hey, in this, don't, don't participate in sin. Keep yourself free from sin. Keep yourself free from reproach. So you can remain qualified. You can remain doing these things. And then, just to finish up, that's where verse, I think, and we talked about this before, so I'll do it quickly, but... That's where I think verse 23 fits in so well here. It seems like a puzzle until you had to put this all together. 
No longer drink water exclusively, but use a little wine for the sake of your stomach and your frequent ailments. He's just told them all this about elders and elders who sin and don't participate in this and keep yourself free from sin. Saying, but Timothy, don't. Taking a little wine for your stomach is not a sin. It's not a reproach that's going to generate these sorts of problems. You need to do this. I think that's what fits in there. Timothy was probably saying, man, <laughs> I'm going to do, I'm not going to do anything anybody could question at all. I'm going to run this perfect. I'm going to just try to do everything right. And Paul is telling him, you know, you've got to understand the Scriptures correctly. It's not a sin for you to do this. Yeah, people might, you know, there may be some people who are offended by this, but it's something that you need to do right now. Yeah, Yeah, because you could easily go there, couldn't you? Legalism. You could easily go there having gone through this passage. And so Paul's saying, you, you need to understand exactly what I'm saying here. Take a little wine for your stomach. It's good for you. And you're going to need it to do this work. Because you go to this place with a bad stomach, it's going to get worse. <laughs> Pretty bad. And we'll see in the next uh, the next little section. So what I'm planning to do is just finish up um, this section next time. And then we're going to go to 1 Peter 5. And then look at uh, deacons and the women. So if you want something to study this week, uh, go up and look at 1 Peter chapter 5. All right, let's pray. Father, we are again thankful for your word. Uh, There's so much instruction in it. And just uh, when we start digging in it, how beautiful it is and how clearly it comes from from you, the divine one. This is not a work of men. And uh, just anytime we study it, it just just comes at us in full force. This is from you. And we, we want to follow it because, because of who you are and what all you've done for us. Lord God, just... Just pray for every part of our worship service today as we go to singing and prayer and and worship in the Word, Lord, that it be a true blessing for all of us and and, uh, would also bring glory to you in Jesus' name. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church. If you'd like to learn more about Kootenai Church or to donate to our church ministry, you can do so online by visiting KootenyChurch.org. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and pray you'll join us again next time. Once again, thank you for listening.